difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Wait Until Dark, a Hitchcockian thriller about three crooks who try to steal a doll from a blind woman. And now, in the second half, we're moving on to Don't Breathe, a thriller about three crooks who try to steal money from a blind man. Here the crooks are Rocky, Alex, and Money, who have been using Alex's father's security business to gain access to his clients' homes when they're away. But greed and desperation lead them to depart from their usual M.O. and break into a house while the occupant is still there. He's a nameless blind veteran, played by Stephen Lang, who's sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlement money. What they don't anticipate is that he's extremely prepared for just such an occasion. His house is secured by multiple locks on the doors and windows, he has a vicious attack dog, and he himself is a physically imposing man with such an acute sense of hearing that one creak in the floorboard is enough to get him on the move. Who, who's there? Okay, man, just chill, all right? Look, um, I, I, w- I was wasted and, and I, I wandered in, so that, that was my bet, all right? So I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave, okay? Stay right there. Don't move. Yeah, that's right. I know what's in there, and I ain't leaving without it. You got me? Now you do as I say, all right? What, do you hear me or what? I said stop. Don't you move. What are you going to do now, huh? Huh? Don't Breathe was directed by Fidi Alvarez, who made the Evil Dead remake, which had a similar mix of assured storytelling craft and plenty of hard R nastiness. Of course, that means it's very much in my wheelhouse. But, Tasha and Keith, uh, what about you? Uh, what do you think of this movie? I dug it a lot. It's, it's a really nasty, old-fashioned exploitation film in some ways, but it's also, it also brings, as you say, a, a level of technical craft that really, really works in this sort of uh, scenario. Better than, than in the Evil Dead remake, I thought, where there is a lot of skill, but there's so few rules in that movie. I had no idea where any of it was going. I didn't find it particularly scary. I mostly just found it kind of unpleasant. Whereas this one, it, his instincts and his craft really work in the material's favor. Uh, this film had me three minutes in, Mm -hmm. I think. It starts with a shot of something that's going to come up much, much later in the film. It's kind of a flash forward. But then it introduces its characters in one of the most efficient ways I've seen in a movie in quite a while. You start with them robbing a house, Mm -hmm. and the way they rob a house tells you everything about them. From that moment on, I was kind of sold on this movie because it's so taut, it's so tight, it moves so quickly, and yet you understand who these people are to the degree that you need to. And this movie eventually went to some places that I had a really hard time with in just kind of a, an really? eye rolling. Really? Okay, if that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. as Keith says, it's it's kind of a nasty exploitation movie. And there are also some really ginormous plot holes, and I absolutely loathe the final scene, which I think adds nothing to it. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. Scott's, Scott's given me You're going to have to jog my memory a bit since it's, again, been a, a while since I've 
seen it, but I, I kind of push back a little bit on The Evil Dead. I, I felt like with that remake that the skill was such that I really anticipated seeing this movie because I, I thought at least he's got that going on. I mean, that, that film had an edge to it. I mean, it, it was uh, respectful, I guess, of Raimi and what Raimi brings to the table, but, uh, you know, had its own kind of modern flair that I think is very much present here. You know, there are some extenuating circumstances when I saw that film, just just to sidetrack a little bit. I, I went to Roger Ebert's funeral and I'm like, you know what? I can only go see a movie after that. You know, it seems like <laughs> the right thing to do. So wow. I kind of came into that movie under a little bit of a cloud anyway, but uh, interesting. yeah, anyway. Uh, no, I, I don't tr- trust your instincts on it, but I mean, I, and I do like this movie more but i think you're right tasha i mean that its virtues are that it's really tight and it really really clarifies something that i feel about horror why i like horror so much which is that it's so much a director's genre you really have to bring it on a craft level for a horror film to be great or approaching great i'll give you a kind of an example early in the summer a film called lights out came out do you see lights out Lights Out is a really cool premise. It's a pretty effective horror movie. But I could tell you that if if Fidi Alvarez decided to take that script and apply his style to it, it would have been terrific because he is a stronger filmmaker. And that's something you feel right away with Don't Breathe. And what, one of the things I really appreciate about the, the style of it, again, it's got, you know, as we were talking about with Wait Until Dark, it has those Hitchcockian fundamentals of, of establishing space really well. But one of the ways it establishes space is through camera movement. And because it's so perilous for these characters to move even even an inch in this guy's place because he can hear them so well. Um, When the camera itself moves as rapidly as it does or kind of occupies that space, your stomach just turns into knots because the characters may not be able to move, but this camera is moving and it's scary because you really don't want anything to be moving when this guy's around. And uh, that's, that's good filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, that kind of brings me to, to what I wanted to talk about about the film, which is compared to, to Wait Into Dark, it is the way it plays with our, our sympathies. And we talked about in the first half the scenes in Wait Until Dark where there are three characters in a shot, and one of them is Audrey Hepburn, who is blind, and the other two are communicating with each other. And we just feel awful for Audrey Hepburn. I mean, I, this is a vulnerable person. There's very similar scenes in this as well, where all the peril is because of Stephen Lang as a character known only as the blind man. He's in the room, two or, or three of the burglars are in the room and they're talking to each other or communicating with each other when he can't see them. But it's all about the danger therein. But I think there's some interesting subtle things that both films do as well, because we don't see Audrey Hepburn for a long time. For the first act of the film, it's really about Mike and Carlino encountering this danger uh, in terms of Alan Arkin's character. And naturally, just because you tend to sympathize with whoever's on the screen, you kind of want them to succeed. You kind of like want them to accomplish this goal and get away from the really bad guy and move on with things. But as soon as Audrey Hepburn comes on the screen, just just by virtue of being Audrey Hepburn, our, our sympathies immediately shift to her as well. But then there's some other things going on later in the film where uh, Mike and Susie kind of bond and you almost feel like there's some sort of bond forming between them that might somehow supersede this role he's put on like he really wants there to be a connection that's not necessarily there and and just simply by virtue of, of him being the least bad of the bad guys we, there's a little bit of a shift there too and this one our sympathies are entirely with the burglars up to a point. The movie doesn't really ever let us forget that they are robbers, that they are committing a crime, and that they are violating someone's home and, and taking what's not theirs. 
it's just by virtue of the brutality of the blind man, the skill that keeps our sympathies with them, because it's really tough to say, hey, this is a movie where the good guys are trying to rob a yeah. blind man. It's the rare, it's uh, the rare home invasion thriller where you're siding with the, the invaders. Of a blind man, of the money he got <laughs> from the wrongful death of his daughter. Yeah by a young woman with money, which there's a lot of interesting things with class going on in this in this film as well. It almost has to, it struggles to shift the sympathies back by making him, oh, do you want to get into the really nasty, uh, this was maybe our way back into a general, really but, you know, it kind of confirms where our sympathies lie by having an elaborate revenge scheme in which the woman who killed his daughter by accident is being held hostage in his basement and uh, he has impregnated her. Yeah, which he then proceeds to attempt to do with Rocky, the female heroine of this film. With a syringe. With a syringe, It's a sure. turkey baster, guys. A turkey Come on. Baster. Well, that's sure. right. That's right. So that amount of nastiness kind of makes it hard to feel too bad for him. So yeah, I, 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 I pretty much think it's pretty hard to feel bad for him. But I, I, I like... go with impossible. Yeah. I, I like the way, though, even if they ultimately both films have clear good guys and bad guys, or at least people were rooting for and people were rooting against. There, there's a little bit of fluctuation in that throughout both films. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's actually a really interesting moment in Wait Until Dark when Mike kind of gets a, a split second heel face turn where mm-hmm. he he consciously decides, I mean, like he's he's getting increasingly dangerous and brutal towards Susie. And then he just consciously makes the decision that he's not willing to beat the answer out of her. Sure. And he decides he's going to walk away. And of course, he, that immediately goes poorly for him. Just the second that the sympathies shift, the situation shifts as well. But I mean, and I think you actually uh, feel a little sympathy for Carlino when you figure out what happened to him as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, there's a really interesting thing going on i think in don't breathe where we set up in advance that you know rocky doesn't want the money out of greed she wants the money because she's in a horrible living situation with an awful neglectful mother like uh, neo-nazis right uh, were they I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they had well maybe, maybe, maybe this was to tattoos because they liked the, the way they looked i just i don't remember it's that a, detail a, it's a, been a couple months economic anxiety is the uh, is what they're feeling but, <laughs> but. and there's that little girl that she's trying to get out of peril which is this is I find this just fascinating. I don't think the movie specifies whether that's her little sister, which is what I assumed, mm. or her daughter, mm. which I don't think the movie sets that up at all. But there are a lot of professional reviewers out there that called it one way or the other and that are in conflict over it. I mean, not like arguing, but like when I first saw, I think it was Variety said that she was trying to get her her daughter out of that situation. I was like, really? Her daughter? So I went out and read as many reviews as I could. And some people call it her daughter. Some people call it her sister. I assume sister because they were close enough in age that it would be kind of a stretch to me. Uh, Yeah, so did I. But there are definitely people who did not. Hmm. Regardless, I think the stakes there are established that even if you have no interest in rooting for the home invaders, you're probably rooting for that little little girl to get out of the awful household. So there's a motive there. There's a stake that has been established that's outside like what happens to these home robin yahoos. I was just amusing myself by thinking if this film were made a year later, they'd have Pepe tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then, hopefully, then hopefully, when, then hopefully, people forget what that even means. Yeah. <laughs> maybe when uh, Spielberg goes back and like add, adds CGI <laughs> to it. No, I think you're right. I think one of the interesting things going on with this movie, with both of these movies, is uh, the little plays of sympathy. And I think that Wait Until Dark does the same thing with Gloria as well. I mean, as we kind of established, she starts off as just. I mean, she's a, a bratty little girl picking on a blind woman. Yeah, I, I, my sympathies never go back to Gloria. <laughs> She's really? So awful. She's helpful. <laughs> There's that moment where Susie says, do you want to do something difficult and tremendously dangerous? And she says, I would love to. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm pretty much back with her right, at that fine. moment. <laughs> but I mean, the other element, too, uh, that figures strongly into the film is class, as I think you mentioned, because these thieves do not come from money, particularly Rocky, who... Uh, Ironically, is, money does not come from money as well. No, money. Though uh, money, uh, his name would suggest, a little greedy, a little guilty of greed. He's marked as the first to go, which he is. I'm not sure about this. I, f- I need to watch it again to be sure, but I'm not sure that we find out his name, quote unquote, is money until after he's gone. And I, I kind of find that a relief because that street name makes me roll my eyes so hard. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's an after the fact thing where one of them mentions him and I immediately thought, oh, well, it's probably a good thing they didn't tell us that up front because then we would have known <laughs> that he was not destined to survive this film. Yeah, maybe so. But then, there's, of course, then there's the other element, too, about the settlement money. I guess what we learn about this case that got him to settle money was that it was a wealthy family that could settle, uh, right? Or right. So they, yeah, they, they bought him off. They bought him off, right. And it keeps this element of class resentment kind of simmering throughout the whole movie. But again, you know, and it's one of those things, again, it's a, it's one of those little touches that the film doesn't really need, you know, especially a film that is so devoted to just the sheer mechanics of horror filmmaking. But, you know, it adds at least some layers. It's a little bit more layered a film than it has to be. And I know you want to talk about setting. I don't want to steal your thunder, but but it's certainly the idea of doing this film in Detroit right now is is an ideal moment for that. Setting the film, it was mostly filmed in Hungary, but yeah, no, it was convincingly Detroit. I mean, you know, my my topic is indeed setting. You know, a few months ago we did that episode on assault on precinct 13 which is about a gang that attacks prisoners and officers and employees of a police precinct that's shutting down and what makes the attack possible in that film is that no one was around to respond to it uh the precinct is isolated in a neighborhood that's so bad that a police precinct is no longer deemed necessary and don't breathe pulls off a similar trick by having the blind man's house in a detroit neighborhood where all the other houses are boarded up the film doesn't have too much in the way of social commentary, but such a scenario is not uncommon for the city, which has been hit so hard by job loss and by governmental mismanagement that it filed for bankruptcy in 2013. You know, and then along with other elements like the you know sort of notorious Devil's Night that's flared up time and again in, in the city the night before Halloween, uh, Detroit has kind of become a town that's associated with with horror of both the fictional and real world variety and the blind man too may be sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars but you know signs of economic despair all around him and in fact the act of tucking all of that cash away in his house uh, rather than a bank has kind of a distinct kind of depression era 
flavor to it. Um, so I think that you know, even though this is shot at what are you hungry is that what you're saying? Hungry, hungry the, the interiors. I think they did some exteriors in Detroit. The exteriors in Detroit. It felt it felt like a Detroit film. They should have tax breaks, right? It, it, it seemed like for a while a lot of films were being made yeah, in Detroit, but, and but those went away. Good as Hungarian tax breaks. <laughs> I guess uh, where did Uwe Boll shoot all of his movies? Yeah, uh, that was on Hungary. Where he got all his breaks? Well, you want to talk about the, compare them a bit? I guess. I guess how would you compare? the setting here versus the uh, setting of, of Wait Until Dark, which is, seems to be set in a strangely, at least by our today's standards, underpopulated corner of, of the city. <laughs> that, that is true, though, though it's authentically small. For a city, sure, apartment. right? Yeah, it's a cramped apartment. Yeah, it is the it is the type of place that that New Yorkers would live in that other people would maybe want to have a little bit more room. Uh, but I don't think you know, other than the claustrophobic aspects of both films, I guess I I, I don't think the urban setting is all that significant to wait until dark. Except that we keep bringing up the fact that the roads are from Scarsdale, which <laughs> just kind of gives you the idea of like this, this far flung locale somewhere far out in the world, you know, far away from like the core of New York city, Yeah, which is a New York attitude about yep. Scarsdale. Very yeah. much so. There's also the uh, wait until dark. It's, it's a place with really no hiding places. It's, it's, you know, there is a bedroom. You can close the door there, but it's, I don't even know if the bedroom door gets closed. There's a closet, but not, not a very big one. Whereas, in uh, uh, Don't Breathe, it's all hiding places. Like it's it's all like weird little corners, and it's a sprawling old house, and that has some features that people were not expecting either. But mm-hmm. it's just this very cluttered space that only one person knows how to navigate, and that's not our heroes. No, and in many respects, they're they're boxed in. He he's anticipated something like this happening. I think this is his. He's made his own bank in the sense that he this is impenetrable fortress that he's built. And once once you're in, it's you know it's like a roach motel. You can't you can't get out. So you're 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 forced to retreat to these areas that only really make you more vulnerable because you don't know where you're going, and he knows where exactly where you're going. He can hear it. He knows knows the spaces, and he knows there's no way out. So uh, that, and that's a kind of a you know a fascinating reversal of the dynamic in wait until dark because of course you know we are always feeling that Susie is the vulnerable one because she is she is blind and there are these three men and we never think that she has an advantage until the very last moment when she does but here uh, as soon as the blind man is roused from slumber that's it. He's in control, and everybody else is struggling to figure out how to escape his wrath because he's got skills. Like I said, the best Marco Polo player in mm-hmm. uh, in history. At least four blocks around, houses aren't occupied. No people means no 501 patrol. It's going to be a piece of cake. The guy's a shut and hasn't left his house in like five days. I say we do it with him in the house. We'll get a chlorobomb. <laughs> Jesus. Get out of my home, Doc! Yeah, that's her guy. Wait, is he blind? He's lost his sight in Iraq or something. That's kind of messed up to have a blind guy, isn't it? Just because he's blind don't mean he's insane, bro. We do this tonight. 
I think it's interesting that Alvarez's camera makes a point of exploring the space as they enter it mm-hmm. and establishing like it zooms in on all these little details in a way that made me think of a video game. Just <laughs> here is here is this latch, here is where it is, here are the bars on this window, here is this lock. Like the the camera finds all of these little details to let you know what's going to be significant. Mm-hmm. But also to answer the question, I feel like in Wait Until Dark, there's perpetually the question of why doesn't Audrey Hepburn go check and see if the door is locked? Because people keep walking in. Why doesn't Audrey Hepburn call the police on the phone right now? And for the most part, the script manages to, like at the point where you're, you're, you really start thinking, all right, if you had any sense, you'd call the police. That's the moment she picks up the phone and tries to yeah. call the police and can't no, the, the, over and her, over and I think over. her actions make sense in the movie for eh, the most part. I don't know. If it was me, I would, I would be on that door. Especially, <laughs> there's one place that doesn't resemble New York City. 60s or otherwise is there's like the one lock on the door yeah, you can trust everybody <sighs> oh my gosh well not after this uh that that was the film where suddenly uh, new yorkers needed 37 locks on the door <laughs> but what i think is interesting about don't breathe is after all of the space is thoroughly established after mm-hmm. you have the geography of the house down that's where we keep opening new doors we mm-hmm. keep finding new spaces every time we think we've explored everywhere there is to explore a new wing opens up which also feels a little video gamey like we've explored all of these different spaces and picked up all of the items and tried all of the locks yeah. not until you go through all of the steps you need to go through does this new part of the story open up where you can access the basement and the crawl space yeah. and this other room and this new hallway so and somebody falls outside and then has to ends up back in under interesting circumstances. <laughs> yeah. And it just it keeps feeling like the space and the story develops. I mean, one of the ways I never quite finished my thought at the beginning, which was Don't Breathe, I think, has the script isn't nearly as tight as Wait Until Dark. There are a lot of flaws, but I was along for the ride because it convinced me emotionally really early on. And even when all of these little things kept kind of trying to throw me out of the story, I was on board with it. But one of the things that interested me was the way we keep plausibly advancing the setting, the space in which the Mm -hmm. characters are by introducing new elements. Every time we think we are up against a wall, something new happens. Well, and he doesn't cheat because that that can be a cheat. Uh, He does, as you say, does a really good job in the beginning establishing certain elements that are in the house places in the house items that are, are going to come into effect later like a you know there's a workshop and that's got a hammer and other things like you know and there's there's a gun under his bed and the locks on various doors the bars on various windows because a lesser filmmaker would just have us encounter these things out of the blue and whenever that happens it always feels like a cheat like they're just picking something out of the out of thin air because they need it to move the scene forward uh, deus ex machina so this film is not guilty of that while also being able to expand on the space, you know, in a convincing way, in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat. It's a little cheaty. Well, I mean, where? where well, there cheaty? are a few cheats. Okay. Well, one of the big ones for me is what reason did they have to believe that this man kept his money in the house? Like money's fixer says, oh, by the way, he, he got this huge settlement. And we just jumped directly from there to past underpants gnomes to, so of course it's in the house somewhere. Well, they, they, they talk about him being a shut-in. I mean, he's I guess, a he, I, guess he, I guess he only has to go to the bank once <laughs> with all of that money. But but maybe he's somebody who's not wanting to get out to make any withdrawals. But um, You know how they know? 
Because if they didn't know, there wouldn't be a movie. Well, yeah, but that's never a good excuse. Similarly, uh, I one of the things I felt like was a big cheat was uh, early on they sneak into his well, money sneaks into his bedroom and uh, gases him, mm-hmm. and that doesn't work, and we never find out why. Yeah. Um, it works. It just doesn't work not very for very long. long. They have a little bit of a window. If they'd have found if they'd have found the money right away, they could have left. It's an echo of the dog too, where they effectively knock out the dog, but just not for long enough. Mm-hmm. Oh man, the dog! The dog is something else. Uh, the, well, the dog is is something exactly the same. A lot of this movie reminded me of Green Room, which mm-hmm. is another like very idiosyncratic, director driven, incredibly tense movie. That's also an escape room movie that also has new spaces that keep opening up, and also has like vicious attack dogs. <laughs> yeah, where you have that sense of like okay that guy's got a gun and he's shooting all around that feels way less dangerous than the fact that there's this dog like yeah. these things feel in both those movies they just feel like this ginormous threat to life and limb it's, it's really visceral in both of those films they both have neo-nazis they do both have and now i'm imagining all the green room neo-nazis with pepe tattoos and <laughs> it's a much less effective you're movie. a little obsessed sorry elections driving us all crazy with patrick stewart with a big pepe on his head yeah yeah exactly oh my gosh <laughs> i like to how relentless don't breathe is and how it goes one or two steps beyond where you expect it to do and the dog is a perfect example i mean there's this you know because at that point there's a point at which our hero is free and you think, hey, she's out of the house. That's it's over. We because we've been through a lot already. We've really experienced all that we need to experience. And she gets out, and you know, and he can't do anything when, when she's out in the open air. And uh, but then there's the dog, and the dog is chasing her and trapping her in the car. And suddenly we get the movie Cujo for like ten minutes, and it's uh, adds that n- next you know layer of tension. Uh, I saw this movie with, I think you did too, probably with a large at a preview. So there was a mm-hmm. full preview, and I really. It had them on the hook in a way that I don't mm-hmm. think I've experienced in a long time. It was a fun movie to see with a crowd because it really it's tight and it, it goes to pretty extreme places and you know you get really invested in in the situation. It's really hilarious to me that we just got this wave of like whiny ass think pieces asking if cinema's dead. Mm-hmm. I have had more experiences in a theater this year where the audience has just been so along for the ride where every twist and turn and shock like you can hear like the gasps or mm-hmm. the the cries of horror or the the moans of dread or seeing La La Land at TIFF, like you could hear the audience's appreciative, not just laughter, but just like these little subtle pleasure noises Mm -hmm. at all of these references to old Hollywood with Don't Breathe, with Hell or High Water, with The Girl with All the Gifts, with Green Room, all of these movies, you can hear the audience being drawn in and just shaken violently like uh, like a wet rag in a dog's mouth and it's been <laughs> it's been a really fun experience so you know dogs hate wet rags shut it whiners you really just never declare cinema dead it's never going to be it, it's always alive our friend Bilga Ibiri who's the critic for the Village Voice always said that every year is a good year for movies which I think is true and I think just people didn't stick around for August Don't Breathe uh, Kubo Peter Dragon it was a surprisingly robust you know month that we usually think is going to be full of crappy movies but uh, Suicide Squad distortion effect I think we're kind of lowered yeah. our, our perception of the quality of all the movies around it <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
But what about you, Tasha? You have a topic, yes? I do have a topic. Um, my topic was blindness, which we actually covered a lot of the territory I was going to cover in the first segment. We talked about how Wait Until Dark uses blindness to establish Audrey Hepburn's courage and her vulnerability to establish things that the audience knows and that she doesn't know. Don't Breathe uses blindness kind of in the opposite way to establish the vulnerability of the, the people who aren't blind in this situation. I kept going back to, to Pitch Black, to the movie Pitch Black, and this idea of this all-encompassing darkness that where there are creatures that are prepared to navigate it and you're not. And in both of these movies, we have sequences where the person who is not blind is thrust into the world of the blind person. And they address it in very different visual ways. Wait Until Dark kills the lights. Don't Breathe puts us in this like low light vision goggle kind of effect where we can see the characters and we can see that they can't see. Mm -hmm. And we can see what they can't see. So once again, we have information that they don't and it, and it causes dread. I think the two different approaches play very differently in terms of how much tension they build, but they're still both kind of going to the same place. They're doing the same thing. And this low light vision effect we've seen in a lot of movies, the wreck movies towards the end, Cloverfield um, had a terrifying low light vision sequence. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Silence of the Lambs right. early on. I think that's always just a really effective thing. When you're up close in the face of a character and you can see that they can't see, it, there's a nakedness and a vulnerability to that that's really hard to match otherwise. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the case of Don't Breathe, that sequence where they are in a completely dark space, and he, we already feel at the beginning that they're at a disadvantage in this guy's house, no matter whether he's blind or not. But in that situation, forget it. I mean, they're just, they, they don't know where they're going. He knows where he's going, and he's any little noise they make, they make he's going to pounce on, so it does increase that tension. I mean, not, not I mean, the Jodie Foster sequence to me, I mean, that is, that is as terrifying as movies get, that whole scene, because he's got the night vision glasses on so he can he can see her and she can't see him that's another level entirely but uh it's very effective i'm just reading also that lang wore contact lenses that restricted his vision basically making him blind uh, when he was filming this and then in those scenes the other actors wore similar contact lenses where they kept their pupils dilated and can barely see so there is a uh, degree of not acting to their acting mm -hmm. in, in those sequences a technological cheat, which, as we said, that's a really hard thing to pull off to convincingly, you know, the way they're groping around right next to him, completely unaware. I mean, yeah, actors are, are good at this acting thing. Yeah. Um, but like the physicality of that kind of thing is kind of hard to pull off, I think. So let's get let's get toward the end of Don't Breathe, which is. Where a lot of nastiness happens, it's, it's unsettling on a, so many <laughs> levels. But again, this is, as we talked about, very much a hard R exploitation film. Uh, what did you think of that, of, of this revelation, pretty grim revelation of what this blind man is doing and the way all that played out? To me, it was the moment where we talked about genre with Wayne the Dark, when it switched from a suspense film to a full-on horror movie, a very kind of contemporary, sort of Seven-inspired, grisly, horrible things happening in somebody's basement that maybe wouldn't be able to show uh, 20 years ago. That, that was kind of the shift, that moment it shifted for me. I think there is, at least in the mind of the blind man, a moral distinction that he's trying 
trying to draw between you know the, the different ways that he could impregnate her right you know he's trying mm-hmm. to say i am not raping this person i am doing something that is morally correct in his mind by using this turkey baster or whatever to impregnate her to have a child that she has taken from me mm-hmm. yeah he says i've never forced myself on anyone and it's it's very much like a moral statement like how dare you think i'm a rapist as yeah. i prepare to tie you up forcibly, impregnate you, keep you in my basement for at least nine months, make (laughs) you go through childbirth, and then probably murder you. It just occurred to me how much this whole sequence owes to uh, Pink Flamingos. Never saw it. I've never never seen Pink Pink Flamingos. Flamingos. Well, uh, part of Pink Flamingos? Well, the part where (laughs) there are characters who trap women in basements and impregnate them with turkey basters. That doesn't Um, sound very similar. Yeah, Um, yeah. That part might have some resemblance to to this Yeah, it's not like Phoebe Alvarez has not seen that film. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, yeah, but I would actually I dispute the notion that he would murder her. I think that I think that's at the end of all of that. Do you? I mean, he because, says because if he's gonna if he's gonna draw that distinction, if he feels like this is some sort of a exchange that he is making, that something was taken from him, and he's going to have some compensation that she would live. He says that he's going to let her go. I don't believe him. Mm-hmm. I I mean, he can't. He literally cannot. She will go directly to the authorities, sure. and then he will lose the child and his freedom. I think he may have lost his mind to the degree where that doesn't matter, though. I do think that that is what the the whole turkey baster thing tells us, is that he's – that. I mean, there's a sympathy shift there that for me has nothing to do with – well, he's, he's a rapist and a kidnapper and a forced impregnator whatever the the word for that is, there's a sympathy shift there for me where you realize, oh, he's insane Mm -hmm. and dangerously insane and he has no sense of boundaries or morality, um, which is a very different thing from just, you know, garden variety, oh, he's rapist. At that point, anything they do to escape becomes valid. Oh, sure. I mean, there's no question about that. But I think there maybe is a question earlier in the film. You know, they're the ones that broke into his home. If they kill him in order to escape, that's morally on them. If they kill him in order to escape being tied up and forcibly impregnated, that becomes a very different thing. I mean, the film really, the film needs, I mean, it doesn't need this specifically, but it does need something for us to think, okay, they're justified in whatever they do. Uh, Otherwise, you know, on its face, it's just they're they're robbing a blind guy. Oh, I agreed. Um, And the, you know, the fact that Rocky at least is trying to do it to save a little girl mm-hmm. still doesn't really justify, you know, ruining the life of this man who yeah. has nothing to do with her And situation. who's lost his daughter. That's kind of an abstract for me, I suppose. It shouldn't um, be that abstract. He's watching a video of her or has a video of her not watching true. exactly, yeah. but he's got a video of her going That he on apparently a goes to sleep to every night. Right. It makes it impossible. And without it, I think it would be very possible to just root for the blind man. Without that element or something like it, it would be very be like, oh, good, kill him. They have, they have it coming. Yeah, I mean, I think Alvarez does something really interesting with the film in that they don't have him speak for the most part. Like he says a few words here and there, but until the basement sequence, he is largely just this primal figure. Um, I mean, a primal figure that that causes death and mayhem. And he's not humanized that much. I mean, there is that touch where he's watching these videos of his daughter and there are the stories we've been told. But, I mean, he's like this lumbering bear-like force of of murder that I think Alvarez kind of has to go out on a limb to dehumanize him in order to compensate for all of the ways in which he's in the right in the first half of the movie. So, Tasha, you have some quibbles with the very end of the film. Remind us what that is and what uh, what the issue was for you. 
After the action of the film resolves, after the escape out into the world, we get this coda in a train station where we see a news report saying, oh, by the way, he lived, which, okay, that uh, oh, right. in and of itself okay. kind of gives me the eye rollies because of the sheer amount of yeah. uh, damage he's taken. I mean, it's just yet another like Mike Myers. Oh, no, he's not dead. He's mm-hmm. still coming. But on top of that, like the revelation that somehow he was able to cover up everything that went on like in that condition he was able to fix the house in such a way that nobody discovered the murder basement nobody investigated the murder (laughs) basement nobody found that corpse nobody found i don't know semen sprayed everywhere he he was able to fix all of this just everywhere everywhere it's really dust for semen really spinal tap (laughs) to semi-quote spinal tap yeah it's just felt like the purpose of that tag is to say oh he's coming for her wherever she goes yeah she's he still knows what she did last summer yeah and i feel like as threat it just doesn't work well no it's just a it's a blatant setup for for a sequel or just the obligatory tag at the end of a horror movie that every horror movie has to have which is uh yeah it was it's a one moment that felt mandated fake Yeah, I, I cut a little slack because it does seem like a mandatory element, but it doesn't. It's, it's it doesn't work. Never mandatory. Doing doing something. If it, it is if you're stupid. It, if it, it is if you're like you need to leave the door open for something. I don't know. Doing how something you would do stupid that and predictable is never mandatory. Okay, that's well, all right. I, won't, I I cut it no slack. It's off my best of list for the year. I, you know, I I don't think this was ever going to make my best of. <laughs> no. I think it's it's way too flawed and mm-hmm. uh, and full of holes in a lot of ways. But I still want to emphasize I was so on board totally. for the tension that this movie built and for the just the performances. I mean, yeah, hats off to Stephen Lang. Who else could play that role? Uh, yeah, for sure. But also Jane Levy. I mean, much like Audrey Hepburn, like she gives good terror. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to have a kind of a female centric horror film that's that's about the watching of a woman like disintegrate into mindless terror you want somebody who can bring it off as Mm -hmm. an actress and she's really convincing in this she gets some really good 10 cloverfield lane level resourcefulness in terms of for instance how she deals with a dog with available tools Um, but she also just she gives good terror yeah for sure well wait until dark can be rented digitally via the usual streaming services it's also available on dvd but not blu-ray right now uh don't breathe is winding down its run in theaters uh but you might be able to see it second run or or later uh, when it comes on digital and dvd and all those things and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it puts some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to recommend a podcast that's not entirely film-related, but it's close enough, and I think there's enough overlapping interest here, which is the podcast called Imaginary Worlds. I put out a call on Twitter to say, hey, recommend some podcasts for me to listen to. And this was a good one. It's, it's all about you know, science fiction and fantasy related topics. It, it's hosted by Eric Malinsky, who's like a veteran public radio reporter, he used to work for Studio 360. And these are really kind of bite-sized, 20, 25-minute, this American life-size segments uh, on various topics. If you were looking for film ones, there's a whole stretch of on Star Wars that he did ahead of The Force Awakens coming out. But it's not necessarily, you know, it digs into specific topics. There's a whole episode about the, the slave Leia phenomenon 
on and, and, and people on both sides of that particular thing in terms of whether it's appropriate or not and, and where it fits into the overall world of Star Wars. There's a good episode on Ghosts in the Shell and so on and so forth. I, yeah, recommend it. Uh, it's available you know, through your usual podcatchers. It's called Imaginary Worlds. It's also on the Panoply Network. I, I realize I'm plugging oh. for a fellow mm. Panoply show uh, and just now, I just yeah, now realized This is that. what they call cross-promotion. Almost accidental uh, cross-promotion. No, not even but, almost. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> totally accidental cross-promotion. Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, I'd like to recommend a film called Camera Person, which is a documentary by Kirsten Johnson that I saw at True False earlier this year and was released to theaters in a pretty limited way, September 23rd. Uh, I imagine if people are going to see it, they don't live in a major city. Maybe they'll have to see it uh, when it comes to uh, streaming services or whatever. But in any case, Johnson has been a cinematographer on documentaries since the early 2000s. Uh, she's made films like Citizen Four, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, Fahrenheit 911, etc. You know, her work has taken her around the globe uh, to places like Nigeria and Afghanistan and Darfur. And Camera Person is basically a B-roll. It's an assembly of outtakes from her work, which function as a sort of autobiography and a travelogue and a meditation on the art of nonfiction filmmaking. And it's just an utterly unique movie that, uh, I don't know, just gives you a lot to think about just in terms of her craft and in terms of, you know, the various issues that her, the documentary she shot is are trying to address and just her personal connection to her subjects uh, behind the camera. It's uh, really unique. And I, I, th- I don't know, I haven't met anybody who hasn't really uh, taken to it. So camera person, if you go to camerapersonfilm.com, uh, you can uh, look up to see if it's screening in your area. There's a list of, of, of screenings through November. And if you don't catch it that way, then put it on your viewing list and catch it later. Uh, Tasha, what about you? Uh, a few things. Just uh, in the last podcast, <laughs> just a month ago at this point, um, Genevieve recommended the Build a Skexis episode of Jim Henson's Creature Shop. I was so jazzed. I went home and watched it that night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I loved it so much. So I, I just want to echo her recommendation. Uh, I mean, you can find it streaming online uh, free very easily. It, it was just <laughs> – you get to watch three different teams of Creature Shop builders handed the challenge build a skexis it's a um, next picture show retweet <laughs> yeah it kind of is it's a very deliberate internal cross promotion mm-hmm. um but film wise andrea arnold's american honey uh, is in some theaters right now it's going to be rolling out to a wider release throughout october i saw this film at tiff and just really fell for it it is quite long it is in no hurry to get where it's going it was filmed under fairly remarkable circumstances that involved arnold just cross-country road tripping across the u.s to get a sense for it Mm -hmm. and picking up non-actors who were hanging out in Walmart parking lots or at beach parties and just collecting this kind of group of kind of, you know, 20-something kids who had nowhere to be and building a film out of them. I mean, she had a script and she had a plan involving Sasha Lane, the lead actress, as this kind of aimless character in poverty who's invited along on this endless road trip trying to sell magazine subscriptions to people who don't want them. (laughs) It just becomes this strange, immersive, hypnotic road trip. Arnold actually road tripped with the kids, having completed her own road trip to get a sense for America, Mm -hmm. given that she was a British director. She did another road trip, 12,000 miles with these kids in tow and just kind of like filmed them and built a story out of their interactions as well as like the through line she had with the script. And there's just, there's such a like a loose, immersive, 
immersive feel to it. We were going to try to do it for the podcast, uh, possibly paired with Larry Clark's Kids, but Kids is largely unavailable. And we had so many competing things for this slot coming back. We had to drop it. I really regret it because American Honey is a really interesting film, and I think people should watch it. Hey, Tasha, prior to this podcast, you said, hey, no one would say Queen of Cotway. That was going to be yet another thing on this list. I'll just just briefly recommend that too. Queen of Cotway, a really good inspirational Disney sports film, but about chess in Africa. I was going to leave that one for last because all three of us reviewed it. All three of us really liked it. And Mm -hmm. I figured there might actually be discussion of that. Unlike these things that we bring in where only one person's. Hey, gang, what do we we think of Queen of Cotway? I liked it. I liked it too. Yeah, that was pretty good. Marinaire, the director of Mississippi Masala and Salam Bombay, uh, has actually spent a lot of time in Uganda. Yeah, I, I noticed that after I saw it. I saw that info. She started a film school there. Her husband is Ugandan. Or actually, I think her husband's father is Ugandan, but of Ugandan ancestry. She lived in uh, Uganda for a while when she was filming Mississippi Masala. Like, she she knows the culture there. She mm-hmm. like She knows the places that she's shooting. She also worked with non-actors that she found locally and it's a disney film and it feels like a disney film but it also feels like authentic more authentic than a disney film has any right to feel yeah i mean it's sort of a a hooray for the little differences type of experience uh in that in that it is very recognizably a disney family movie with a sort of an underdog story but accented in a much more authentic way than than Disney films usually are. And the fact that they're not handling it that well and that it's not performing as it Mm, should, it's extremely discouraging bad job disney <laughs> uh so but i so if you're gonna see it see it right away because it may be going away point out it stars lupita nyong'o david oyelo and and medina nalawanga who's who's the newcomer here as as queen of Kotway, the, the young chess champion and i thought she was fantastic yeah. she is also uh she grew up in kampala and she has a background very much like the the actual main character that you're seeing on screen interesting yeah this is her this is her first film she was just somebody who uh, Marinaire found locally and worked with, and she's she's really good. Yeah. Three out of three, next picture show, recordees recommend Queen of Cotway. <laughs> See it while you can. All right. Well, uh, great. It looks like uh, we've given our listeners plenty of things to do with their free time. Thanks, guys. Sure. Mm-hmm. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out October 18th and 20th. Keith, what do we have lined up? Well, next we'll be taking two trips to Westworld, an amusement park for the extremely wealthy who want to visit an Old West filled with robots designed to fulfill their every desire. The first is a 1973 movie written and directed by Michael Crichton. The second sees us stepping away from the big screen to compare the film to HBO's new adaptation, a complex revamp of the original film. The HBO series pedigree combined with its cinematic origins made it too tempting a comparison to resist, so we're allowing the world of television into our film podcast for this episode. Maybe, oh, and maybe, like, maybe like never chocolate again. chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> uh, Ooh, that sounds tasty. It does, it does. But, just, but, only, but, only, scares, but only to first. consume the once. <laughs> I'm just making, allowing it to have, I don't know. I have no objections because I think I think these are very interesting films. It's going to be kind of an exciting discussion. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Wait Until Dark and Don't Breathe and anything else film-related for that matter. Uh, we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, 
Where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. You can find me writing about film and, incidentally, interviewing Andrea Arnold about American Honey over at TheVerge.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? You can find me uh, writing occasionally at UpRocks.com, working a lot behind the scenes at UpRocks.com. And you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. And Scott? Well, you can find me at such publications as NPR, Variety, Uprocks, uh, New York Times, uh, Vulture, um, Rolling Stone, and other places like that. Musings. I'm the editor-in-chief of Musings. Where can one find Musings? <laughs> uh, at uh, oscilloscope.net. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And, of course, you can find our producer and uh, most of the time co-host uh, Genevieve on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky and contributing to the culture section of Vox.com. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Under the cops, I can't involve them. God knows what they could find. But I've learned a lesson.